chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, listen to my defense that I now make to you. When they heard that he was addressing them in Aramaic, they became even quieter. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsicilia, but brought up in the city, educated with the strictness under Gamaliel, according to the law of our ancestors, and was zealous for, the, for God, just as all of you are today. Like I said, most of the time, Paul does not go to his credentials. Most of the time, the authors of the, 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 the James and John and all of them do not incite their credentials. But in this case, he does, because he wants, they're accusing him now of not being an authentic Jew, of not knowing Judaism, of actually trying to destroy Judaism and tear it down. So the first place he starts with is, not only am I born in Sicilia, which gives me a high ranking, I'm not some just ding-dong came off the street, but at the same time, I also was a disciple under Gamaliel. We already talked about him. Gamaliel was one of the most trusted, respected, educated, high-ranking Pharisees of this time period. And he was tutored under him. Not only is he getting tutored and taught, um, tutored is probably not the best word, but taught, instructed, discipled by Gamaliel as one of the most respected, prestigious teachers of the Pharisee schools. But you have to understand that what he's saying here is that by the age of five years old, he was already getting intense lessons on the law. Okay, the law, the Torah, all that kind of stuff. At five years old, to be trained as a Pharisee, especially under Gamaliel, he would have started a very rigorous, intensive school of learning and understanding the law. By 10 years old, he would be going into um, the Pharisaic traditions, understanding the Mishnah and the Talmud. And the Mishnah and Talmud are basically a commentary, the Pharisaic commentaries on the, the law and the Torah and all that kind of stuff, and then the ritualistic um, ways that you are to apply it and implement in your lives all the rules about the laws, and you can tie two knots, but not three knots, that kind of stuff. And so that would have started at age 10, so that's exciting stuff. So at the age of 10, he would have done that. And then around the age of 13, when he was now considered an adult, um, and re remember, by the age of 10, he would have had probably most likely the Torah memorized. It's very poetic. It's got acrostics in it and rhyme, that kind of stuff. So if you don't have something memorized, it kind of stands out blatantly because you miss a beat or there's not a rhyme or there's a letter missing in the acrostic. So he would have a good handle on this. And then by the age of 13 years old, he would have gone out and begin to practice his first teaching. He would begin to instruct and teach other people on the law and do instructions and that kind of stuff. So by the time that he's what we would consider an adult, he would have a mastery, a mastery of things. And this is why he was so respected and people were throwing their cloaks before him um, during the time of Stephen. So by him just saying, I was taught by Gamaliel, they automatically would have known all of what I just told you. They would have automatically known that. So, And they would have known that he would be up there with the most respected and intelligent elite on his understanding of Judaism and his devoutness to Judaism. So that's where he kind of goes next with this, is he says not only that, but I was very zealous for God's law as of today, and I persecuted this way even to the point of death, tying up both men and women and putting them in prison. 
as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify for me from them, I also receive letters to the brothers of I also received letters to the brothers of Damascus, and I was on my way to make arrests there and bring the prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So the second thing that he basically points out is not only did I know Judaism, not only were, was I an expert, not only did I have high ranking, not only did I teach it and instruct others, but I was devoutly committed, zealous, fanatically committed. I was willing to kill people. And not only that, but I was supported by the highest ranking political powers of Judaism with letters from them and bringing letters to other people saying that I had the right to do this and I was doing this. Like I was the right hand arm mafia guy, so to speak, of the Sanhedrin. I had the, 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 the knowledge I had the devoutness, and I had the political backing and power. Like, you do not get any more Jewish than me. And that's what he's saying. Now remember, this isn't a bragging right. This isn't, look at me, I'm awesome. This is, you doubt me, but I'm not. But this is also where he's going to say later that I count all of this as loss. In fact, the, the Hebrew word now, this might be offensive, but the Hebrew word that he uses for I consider all this loss, that's not the word that shows up in your English. It's basically the, the most crass word for poop that you can come up with in a cuss word sense. And that's basically what he's saying. Obviously, it wouldn't be that word in Hebrew, but it would be a, a, a vulgar word. This is how he considers it. But he's only using this because it means something to them. Not to him, but to them. And if it means something in their book, then it will help them understand where he is. So that when he says the next things about how he's in support of the way and how God changed him, that will carry away. So that when he gets to what truly matters, his encounter with Christ, the, the, the Christ changing him, that will carry more weight with them because of what they already do think. As much as credentials and that kind of stuff don't matter, if you're going to go to a Freemason or you're going to go to a high-ranking politician or you're going to go to a high-ranking CEO of a company, yeah, it may not mean much to you, your status, but you might want to list a few of those statuses off because it will mean something to them. And then the next thing you say about the gospel, which actually means something to you, will carry more weight in their ears, even though the first thing that you said carries very little weight to you and the second thing that you're saying actually carries the weight. And so that's what Paul's doing here. The credentials are not about, look at me. The credentials are, this matters to you, so that what I say next that matters to me will hopefully matter to you as well. And that's what Paul's doing here. So now he gets into what really, truly matters to him, his transformation. As I was en route near Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. Then I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene. Who are you persecuting? Now, once again, we talked about this earlier, but repetition is a hallmark to Jewish literature and learning. Um, the fact that he immediately recognizes the Lord and answers him as Lord, Lord, 
shows that Paul acknowledges that the only God that really speaks to people is Yahweh himself. And the only God that has the power to invade people's lives in space, time, and matter is Yahweh himself. So even though he does not know who this is right off the bat, as in a Jesus kind of a sense, he immediately recognizes that, that this is Yahweh, a messenger of Yahweh or representative of Yahweh or Yahweh himself, because no other God has this ability. So when he says, I am Jesus, there's no question in Paul's mind at that point that Jesus is God and that Jesus is who the disciples are claiming. Because his theology of God is so powerful and deeply rooted in its under, his understanding and conviction that all Jesus has to say is, I am Jesus. Because he knows clearly what God can and cannot do and what the other beings of the universe can and cannot do. And that's important. Then I fell on the ground and heard a voice saying, Whom are you persecuting? Those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I, I was not crazy. So I asked, What should I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go to Damascus. There you will be told about everything that you have been designated to do. Since I could not see... Because of the brilliance of the light, I came to Damascus, led by the hand of those who were with me. A man named Ananias, and a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all Jews who lived there, came to me and stood beside me and said to me, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And that very moment I looked up and saw him. The next thing he's doing here is as he's talking about basically his conversion. Just like he acknowledges that only God can do this, they would also have to acknowledge and would because of their ranking that only God can do this. But then the question is, Paul, are you just making this all up or was it real? So that's when he invokes this, the next credential of Ananias. And he says, look, Ananias saw this and heard it and God came to him. And he is a well-respected Jew as well. So now you have two witnesses. And this is what the law required, two witnesses. And so this is what he's invoking here. Is like, if you're, if you're going to doubt what I'm telling you, you're going to go against the law because I have produced, produced two witnesses. And you're going against the respect and nature of these, this other Jew as well. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has already chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one, that is Jesus, and to hear a command from his mouth, because you will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and have your sins washed away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying to the temple, I fell into the trance. Once again, one of the things that he's automatically being... Now, this is where the controversy is going to be slightly introduced. My sins were forgiven. Remember, Jews do not believe that their sins have to be forgiven. They would believe that, like, they're capable of sin and that they could hurt people and that kind of stuff, and that if they said something wrong or insulting to somebody or did a offense, that yes, they would go... They would confess their sins and the sacrifices were all about that. They, they acknowledged that sin but they did not believe that they had to be cleansed of some kind of sin that was condemning them and separating from God. Just like we Christians would think today, as a believer in Christ with the Holy Spirit dwelling me, 
we would unanimously say, I do not have to be forgiven of any sin that is keeping me from going into heaven. However, I do need to ask of repentance of sins that I commit against people. So there are sins that I need to confess that have ruined my relationship with God and people. But there are no sins I have to confess anymore that basically have condemned me to hell and keeping me from the presence of God of eternal salvation. So the Jews believed that as well. For the Jews, it wasn't an act of Christ. For them, it was by the fact that God had chosen them and given them the law that made them automatically saved. Paul's talking about cleansed of sins of condemnation. Many of them be like, what? What? They would have had a problem with that. Verse 17. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord saying to me, Hurry, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. I replied, Lord, they themselves know that I am in prison, that I imprisoned and beat those in various synagogues who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was shed, I myself was standing nearby, approving and guarding the cloaks of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now this becomes the second controversial to the thing to them, because you don't go to the Gentiles. If the Gentiles were meant to be saved, God would have made them been born a Jew. And that's the way they viewed it. The main point of Paul's speech here is to prove that he was a loyal Jew, thus refuting the charges against his teaching. Because of the hostile opposition of the crowd, Paul had to spend a long time detailing his historical background, establishing the facts of the case before moving on to proofs. So at this point, he was not interested in proving the gospel as real. He was not interested in making arguments from Scripture and reasoning intellectually that Jesus fulfills the First Testament. At this point, he had to have them understand who he was in his credentials and who he was. So he goes through all this detail to let them know, this is who I am, this is the weight that I carry, this is why I'm doing what I am. Before he can go into the typical Pauline message of reasoning from scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. However, he's not going to be able to get that far. Because the minute he says that God called me to the Gentiles, they're not going to be happy. They're not going to be happy. Verse 22. The crowd was listening to him until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Away with this man from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. While they were screaming and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust in the air, the commanding officer ordered Paul to be brought back into the barracks, and he told them to interrogate Paul by beating him with a lash so that he could find out the reason for the crowd was shouting at Paul in this way. The tribune has no idea what is being said here, but it doesn't take a genius to realize what just happened to the crowd. What he does recognize is that whatever Paul said just infuriated the crowd so much that they're ready to go back into killing him again. But this time they're even more committed because they throw off their cloaks to free up their body as much as they can for all those death blows. You don't want anything to hinder the death blow. Once again, I mentioned this earlier, but the irony here is that this is exactly what Paul was doing to the Christians. Killing them and persecuting them and then guarding the cloaks as Stephen died. And now, Paul is where Stephen was, giving a speech to the Jews 
as they are persecuting him and his people, and they're now throwing their cloaks off to whoever the new Paul is so that they can stone him. And this is the irony of God, like God's saying, this is where you started here with killing Stephen or an approval of Stephen. And now I am putting you here. Not, this isn't a judgment. This isn't a vengeance. This is just welcome to being my follower. Okay, this is how it all begins. And this is where it's going to continue. The tribune at this point is like, this is crazy. This is the last thing that a Roman ever wants is a riot. Uh, the, the Jews out of control, ready to kill somebody, which is a violation of the Roman law. And then not only that, he, he has no idea why this is even happening. And it's happening in the Temple Mount, which is like a political powder keg in itself. So if a other political powder keg goes off with the killing of a Jew that a Roman couldn't control for a reason he doesn't understand, and then one of the most religiously hot spaces in all of the world, then this is just going to lead to something else. And all I can imagine is the tribune is like, I am so dead. I am so dead here. If I can't get a handle on this, I am so dead. Because Rome doesn't care. All they care is about peace. And anybody who causes the disruption of peace or cannot prevent the peace from, um, or maintain the peace, and prevent the distress from happening, they die. They die. It's a, it's a lesson to everybody that do not threaten the peace. Remember, Rome was not peacemakers. They were peacekeepers under the boot of the heel. Now at this point, he says, he commands the soldiers, drag him back to the fortress, contain him. That way we have no more chaos. We're around Paul. And probably some soldiers are going to stay here and contain the chaos, chaos here. And then you're going to begin to lash him. You're going to begin to lash them. I talked about this in Luke. This lashing would be the flagrum or the flagellum. And this was a whip that basically was a wooden rod about the size of maybe two fists on top of each other. And it had nine leather straps coming off of it. And they would tie bone and shards of metal and anything that they can find into the lashes. And so unlike pirate movies, like Pirates of the Caribbean or something like that, um, or The Bounty, where they would just whip you, not saying that that was child's play, <laughs> I do not want to be whipped, but it would cut you open and it would create lacerations, but eventually you would heal from this. Eventually you would heal from it. This is basically a Roman soldier was trained to do this. They would lash you by your wrists and they would tie you to a wooden stump that was somewhere around belt level, waist high. And they would tie you down so that you were leaning over it. So they would lean you over the post and then tie your straps down on the other side of the ground and cinch it tight. And you were in this weird kind of like squatting, leaning over, but your knees were bent, but they weren't fully extended. So you're incredibly uncomfortable. They would strip you down completely naked and they would lay this thing and they would lay it down on your back and dig it in. And then the Roman soldier, once it all dug into your back, they would pull it down your back, your buttocks, and your thighs. And this, this, is, how, this is what was done to Christ. We talked about this in Luke. 
They would go for all the way from the shoulder blades, sometimes even over. After a while, they begin to wrap it over the shoulder blades onto the chest and then pull it all the way down. And they would do this. The Romans had no limit on how many times they could do this to you. The Jews decided in their law that 40 lashes would kill you. How in the world they worked out that math, I have no idea. So that it was illegal to give you anything. It was 39. 39 was the max of what they could give you. And so the Romans adhered to that when it came to Jews because the Romans were really good. They could kill you with four or five. They could kill you with 39. These, these guys were trained. They were trained. And all testimonies of this kind of a lashing reports that after you get, this is like a giant cheese grater on your back. So all reports say that pretty much the vast majority who got multiple lashes of this, especially the 39, it would have stripped all the muscle and all the skin off of your back. So literally your rib cages would be completely exposed. They talked about it being like ribbons of flesh just hanging off, like peeling carrots and just having strands. And many first-hand accounts like Cicero and people like that would talk about how they would have to take a sash and wrap it around the waist. Because remember, the rib cage stops about right here and there's a good space between your, um, your hip bones and your rib cage, and they would tie a sash around to keep your intestines from falling out. And then you pretty much would just bleed to death. Very, very few people survive 39 lashes. And when they did, they were crippled, like really crippled for the rest of their life. They might live, but they weren't getting around on their own. So if, if Jesus never went to the cross, if he did survive, he would have been crippled. And remember, Jesus didn't die from the crucifixion. He died from bleeding out from the flogging. When they went to break, remember, it, when you're getting crucified, you will hang there for a week, suffocating. And the fact that he died within a matter of three to six hours, because and they poked him in the side and a little bit of blood came out and then immediately water, well, that's when you're bleed, bled out to death and the water is what comes out next because women are about 78% water, men are about 74% water. Um, the water would come out, which means he had already bled out to death before he even suffocated. This is how severe a flogging is. How many lashes does this guy even plan to give Paul? Don't know, but most likely however many it takes to get Paul to talk. And, and, and for the Romans, they were allowed to use any means necessary to get people to talk. Any means necessary to get people to talk. This is why I say Paul has never been lashed, ever. He's been beaten with a lictor's rod, which I'm not saying that's so fun or not a big deal. Um, but that's bruising and broken ribs kind of stuff. But he has never had, he's never been skinned alive. That's never happened yet. And so this is what this guy is about ready to do to Paul. Verse 25. When they had stretched him out for the lashing, tied him over the post and bound him down, Paul said to the centurion standing nearby, Is it legal for you to lash a man who is a Roman citizen without a proper trial? Like I said, the only time Paul really mentions that he's a Roman soldier is if it's, or sorry, a Roman citizen. The only time that he ever mentions that he's a Roman citizen is when his life is going to basically come to an end and therefore the gospel is going, to, the, his ability to preach the gospel is going to be brought to an end. As at this point, now you're like, well, why did he wait so long? Well, once again, the, the, the tribune is speaking Latin. 
And though Paul might know some Latin, he doesn't fully know enough to understand what's going on. But once he gets bound down, you have to understand by the age of 10 years old, everybody has seen a crucifixion with their own eyes. And no matter how much you want to protect your kids, by the age of 10 years old, they, they've, they've either seen the crucifixion and the lashing, or they've seen the results of it. Because these people are often tied up, like where you see stop signs on the road. That's where lashed and crucified people were tied and bound for everybody to see, so everybody knows, do not mess with Rome. And so by the time you're 10 years old, everybody knows what the result is. So the minute he gets lashed down, Paul's like, I know what this is. And at this point, he's like, no, 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 no. I'm a Roman citizen. This is where the tribune is going to be freaked out. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commanding officer, the tribune, and reported it, saying, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the commanding officer came and asked Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He replied, yes. The commanding officer answered, I acquired citizenship with a large sum of money, but I, was e- but I Paul said, was even born a citizen. Then those who were about to interrogate him stayed away from him, and the commanding officer was frightened when he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had tied him up. Once again, we talked about this earlier, why Paul would release, not mention this right off the bat all the time, why he waited to the end. He didn't want the gospel to be based on his citizenship or status and that kind of stuff. He didn't want people to feel like they had to accept it because he, who he was, and he waits to the last minute. But here's the other thing. We talked about the fact that he might have some kind of a tablet that would prove that he was a Roman citizen. But once again, even if he didn't carry this, to claim that you're a Roman citizen and to not be a Roman citizen brought the death penalty. This was so severely enforced. It's not like to say that you have a driver's license and the cop finds out that you don't and you've been driving, you just kind of get a slap on the wrist kind of a thing. Um, th- we're, you're talking about being killed. So most people are not going to go around falsely claiming this. But the thing is, is what makes this significant is Paul was born into it. For whatever reason, his parents were born or already had the Roman citizenship, and Paul was born into it. Now what the tribune's trying to figure out is how did he get this? That's kind of the questioning, okay? It's like, okay, prove it to me. And so he says, I bought my Roman citizenship. Now, some people at this point, they deny the veracity of what's happening here in Acts because it was illegal to buy Roman citizenship. And if you were caught buying Roman citizenship, it was the death penalty. And the, the Romans, the Roman Caesars enforced this significantly. And anybody who got caught selling this kind of stuff or had the wrong paperwork, that forgeries or whatever you want to call it, were just severely punished. However, it was about the time of Claudius, the Roman emperor that we're under right now at the time of Paul, that this started becoming overlooked. That during Claudius's reign, he didn't really care about that as much. It wasn't being enforced as much, or it was becoming harder and harder to enforce it because the Roman Empire was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and that kind of stuff. And so many, many, many scholars say, look, this, this doesn't contradict the history of the Roman Empire in any way that we know of. Um, if you go deep enough, you can find this stuff. And even before that, there's always people who are going to find a way and get around it. And so it's just one of those other things to say, you can't trust the Bible. And it's like, no, 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 no. Just know your history. 
what this guy is saying is, I bought mine. That way he can find out Paul's reaction. Probably him saying, I bought mine, is a better proof of him presenting any kind of an idea. But he already knows that Paul is from Sicilia. And then now Paul says, I was born into it. And that's all the evidence that he needs. This sends him into a loop of horror because you're not even allowed to bind up or handcuff a Roman citizen unless you have ironclad proof that they have committed some serious crime like murder or whatever kind of a thing. So now he's scared because he has technically violated the law by binding and about and probably or like I was seconds away from whipping and lashing this guy as a result of this. He also had a legal obligation to figure this out in advance. It was his job to figure out who his prisoner was, where they came from, what their social family status was before they began to do this. He can do whatever he wanted to anybody to get the answers that he wanted, but he, you, you better start with you better start with figuring out who you're dealing with first. Okay, If you found out that he was just like Jimmy Joe Jew down the street with no ranking or credentials, then you could do whatever you wanted to him to get answers. But if you find out that he was from this family with that ranking and Roman citizenship, then you back off and you, you make sure you get more things. Verse 30. The next day, because the commanding officer wanted to know the true reason Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and the whole council to assemble. He then brought Paul down and had him stand before them. By released him, it doesn't mean that he's been released from prison or being under guard. It's just he's been released. He's been unbound, unhandcuffed. But the reality is he's still been, even though he's a Roman citizen, he's been still been accused of a crime. It's the tribune's responsibility. So now the tribune is like, okay, now, now this is my turf. Basically, at this point, the minute that Paul claims he's a Roman citizen, it's completely out of the hands of the Jews. 